ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real Estate with your hosts, Colin Schwartz and Chris Palmer, Lou. Chris, it's summertime and the big O. How you doing, buddy? It has been too long. It has been too long. Since our, our most recent podcast. I'm really excited. I'm really happy about this uh, today. Plus, what what better way to refluff this flower than having our boy Sam Taves on the on the uh, on the cast. Yeah, Sam is an absolute legend of stud, one of the nicest guys I know, and actually is a part of our team, but is his own entrepreneur as well. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, you guys. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it's we're excited. We're excited to have you. So Ooh, let's I, let's make it really awkward right up front. So when we first met, uh Colin actually was telling me how to pronounce your last name. And you told me how to pronounce your last name and they were different. How do we pronounce your last name? Hold on, let, let me let me say it first. Okay, Tavis, Tavis, well, like Davis. There, you got it. Yeah, that's it. Tavis, Tavis. like Davis. Yep. It's like T A V I S, but not spelled that. Th- that's way. his Instagram handle, which yeah. I thought was just written in German. Smart. That's really good. Yeah, <laughs> it Smart. made it did not make sense to me. So thank you for clarifying your Instagram handle. To no, me. Problem. So, yes. <laughs> no problem. No um, problem. Well, Sam, let's just talk a little bit about your background before I get everybody super stoked that you're a professional baseball player. Or, was retired now retired retired now um but yeah tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you here well um i am a sibling to five um so i've got four brothers and a sister uh grew up in a house in lincoln um dad um did well and and created an environment for us to uh to work hard um and i think that's probably the foundation for everything um went about classes hard went about sports hard that's kind of what uh led to the professional sports avenue and uh that led itself all the way into whatever i was doing next and what i was doing next happened to be dabbling in real estate when i was playing in baseball um and just kind of got started there um it's a it's it's a long-winded conversation of how that all came about but came about with the purple bible like most people's journey did and uh started going into avenues on how to make some money with that, kind of do it on the side because I was getting bored in the off seasons. You come home, work out for three hours a day, and then it's like, all right, well, what am I going to do next? So um, sprinkled into doing some real estate stuff, and, and that's, I guess, how the journey started. How how did it help, or tell us how it helped to grow up with that many brothers? Uh, competition's the biggest thing, I guess. Um, you just don't really survive in an environment like that. If you don't have a competitive gene, you'll just get walked all over. Um, and they're all successful in their own, uh, in their own avenues. Um, oldest brother's an attorney, second oldest brother's an orthodontist, third older brother is a, uh, he's a wealth management advisor. Then there's me and my younger brother is a cybersecurity analyst. And so they're the pursuit of the excellence piece of it was always there between every single individual, even though interests not, weren't always necessarily perfectly aligned. Um, so it created a super competitive environment and that was probably the most beneficial thing but none of them are as good at, at baseball as you right <laughs> my older brother is good he was an all-american in college uh, my younger brother was good um so baseball was a common interest between us three that was but, a very uh, diplomatic answer did anybody yeah. play for the cardinals no uh, did you play for the cardinals sam i did yes uh, uh, see i think you have one up on him yeah, okay did. all right i'll let you guys say it i won't say it <laughs> awesome what was the so you read the purple bible mm-hmm. what what part of real estate or what was the first avenue? And when was that? Of real estate did you start that looking into? So it was actually a similar experience to you, Colin, I believe. I was on a flight uh, 
I had just gotten injured in 2019, uh, tore my elbow up for the second time, and I was flying back, and I knew I had a long rehab journey, and I was like, well, it's going to suck, so I got to do something. So picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, read the whole thing on the flight back. It was two flights. Um, and I sat down at home, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I mean, it was pretty simple. That was kind of my response to it. Baseball is a game of failure and like risk and you don't succeed that much. And so the idea of jumping into something and failing didn't bother me. It was more of like the opportunity of something just if there's an opportunity, like if this so happens to hit, it's going to be awesome. No pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. But if this so happens to work out, this is going to be super awesome. And I mean, that's the deal. That's how we approach deals even today it's like yeah you can make a thousand phone calls and one of them can change your life so it's why not that was kind of my kind of my approach to it and I guess I I think the baseball mindset fed into that because it's it is it's a game where you fail more than you succeed so it's it it didn't bother me and and the risk and the toe dipping that so many people do it didn't I did I just didn't really do it I just kind of jumped in I've never heard anybody describe baseball like that usually it's you know, America's pastime, love getting out there. Um, you know, they, they like it that it's, you know, maybe a slower pace and that it gets exciting. Somebody hits a big home run, but nobody ever talks about that. If you hit one out of every three balls, you are one of the most successful baseball players out there. Correct. Yep. And, and it's, it's one of those things, you know, my son, he just started playing baseball and his first game, he struck out every single time. I'm like, that's, that's what's going to happen. He didn't understand that because in football, points are always scored. Yeah. Soccer points are typically always scored. There, there's something that happens there. Yeah. Um, so that that is a really valuable lesson because it, uh, being an entrepreneur or in real estate, you get your butt kicked every day. Every day, something is going wrong and there's a problem. And if you just fold up after every problem, you're not going to succeed. So that that's really cool. I never thought about that. About yeah. Baseball. Yeah. Yeah. It is very. Uh, it's very process focused. If you if you are results driven in any sense you just get eaten alive the the common saying in in professional baseball and and college baseball is if (laughs) if you're results driven the game will weed you out of it you just you won't be here very long and I think it's the same way with entrepreneurship I mean if you if you can't get obsessed with the process and you can't get obsessed with the things that lead to the results you'll never get the results that you want well that's why so many people struggle to partake in the entrepreneurial that's why I struggled so long. It was so it made so much sense to me to jump into, you know, I, I played a little professional sports. I know you did. Oh man, nothing like the Cardinals. <laughs> and I played some arena ball to pass some time before <laughs> the next school session started. Um, but the military, you just you just jump in, you're in a system, it made sense. You get a paycheck, that's it. As an attorney, if you choose a firm, you just jump in. You're a part of a system, it just makes sense. The whole entrepreneurial route's way different. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I heard you say earlier when you, I love that saying, by the way, I think I've heard you say that before about if you hit one of every three balls, you're successful. But even with your applicability or your analogy with baseball and entrepreneurship, it's just like you have no guarantee of succeeding. And people in my life are like, how, how are you doing that? Or the last seven deals haven't worked or the market's down. Like, how are you going to handle this? It's like, this is the world we live in now. Mm-hmm. You, you are... If this route doesn't work, that route has to work. If that route doesn't work, you go on to the third route. And it's just, it takes a certain mindset, like you've been raised getting your ass beat by a bunch of brothers or something, yeah. to be like, I'm going to I'm gonna get to the top and it doesn't really matter what. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. I, I, would, I would agree. Yeah. I, it, it's a, I think it takes some seasoning to get to that 
I mean, frame of mind. Oh, it's still, still I still smile. Oh, yeah, it's not. Uh, I I think some people have a, some people are are a little more inclined to think that way. But you have to experience failure, overcome failure to get to that frame of mind where you're willing to just say, okay, next. What what do I do now? <laughs> Once you can convert losing or not winning into a learning opportunity and it has its own tuition, I think that's when you can actually rise as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you think a loss is a loss is a loss, and that's all you dwell on, you're, you're going to stop at one. You're yep. not going to take another step forward. No. You, you have to have that resilience, that grid, yep. and learn from those items. Because mm -hmm. that's the only way you're going to learn. It's okay. Like it's The more losses, what is it? Kobe Bryant had missed more shots than anybody ever in the NBA. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest players ever. Yep. He missed more than anybody ever. Mm -hmm miss more yeah lose more 100 percent. because then you're going to get some wins sprinkled in there 100 percent. 100 percent. and those wins are a, a lot better than the every two-week paycheck win that people think is a win without a doubt oh they're huge without a doubt without a doubt i would rather make ten thousand failed phone calls and get five deals done than make two calls and get two deals done T typically it's, the focus is the, though the, just the five deals that got done <laughs> yeah that's probably true <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah, no, that's great. So what what did you start with in real estate? Because, I mean, now you're multifamily, you're doing storage units, which I, I definitely want to get into because I'm just curious about storage units in general. Mm -hmm. But what did you start with? Uh, started with wholesaling two single-family houses. Uh, again, going through a shed port, that was kind of the low-hanging fruit, um, and I think that's kind of something that everybody – it's a good way to learn real estate because you learn how to start to value things. You learn sales tactics. You learn how to talk to people on the phone because you have to. Uh, if you're going to make those deals because they're direct seller. So that was where I started. Um, realized very quickly as, again, Rich Dad, Poor Dad leads into multifamily. That's kind of where like the ownership and and you start to build equity and you start to get cash flow and, and, and these things. All of those sounded good. In my head quickly, though, I was like, well, why don't I just wholesale multifamilies when the checks are bigger? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that was that was kind of my kind of my process on that. Uh, Dave Bader, I partnered with down in Lincoln for about a year, we did that. And we did great. I think we did 10 or 15 of them um, within 12, 18 months. It's huge. And it was awesome. Yeah. It was a great, it was it a great was, time in the market. Too. It was a great time in the market. Couldn't have timed the market better. And I'll give two kudos to Dave on that. He was like, I mean, he he told me to pick, get everything that I could possibly find and, and go for it. Because it, it was, everybody was buying. And it was easy to buy because it was 3% debt. And mm -hmm people could make stuff work that you can't make work in other markets. But I don't want to, the, the, the way it may, it may have sounded when I said it is still you and Dave, but you were successful doing things that other people were not successful at. So you, it was still Correct. Yeah. very impressive what you pulled off. I wasn't trying to say the market helped you. No, that. but it was. I mean, some of those deals don't work today. It would be uh, way harder to yeah, do. Yeah, it, it's way more difficult to do it. Yeah. Unless... To Dave's credit, if you have a disposition network that's very like cash heavy and people are buying with cash, then you know a six and a half cap with cash isn't that bad. But not often. Not not often. So yeah. so what were some of your uh, so tell me about the process of it because I think just with anything everybody gets hung up on like where do I start? How do I talk to this person? How do I know if the deal's going to work? How do I know if the numbers are going to make sense? Like what was your I guess funnel in which you would put these deals through? Meaning you get a deal, okay. Is it talking to the the seller and actually seeing how interested he is, or what? what what's your kind of process? It, it varies. Um, I I guess one thing 
not common to popular belief would be I don't think that there's a cookie cutter approach to an acquisitions a, a, a really good acquisitions individual I don't think there's cookie cutter approaches um, because if I'm talking to you my conversation is going to be different than when I'm talking to Chris me and Chris are more sarcastic with each other you and I tend much to more educated <laughs> you and sure. I sure yeah. Colin said it yeah but like you know conversation dynamics are different with whoever you're talking about and the more feel that you have to pick up on that conversation dynamic and then steer it to the end goal that you're trying to achieve, that's where you're going to find success. So quickly with sellers or potential sellers, I would just try and get a vibe, if that's the word you want to say, of the individual and lean right into it, mirror right into it. And Did you say mirror? Correct. Yeah, mirror. Do you want to explain that? Because we were talking about that yesterday. I think it's really, yeah. it's a really important tactic. Yeah. Um, it's uh, never split the difference. Is that Chris, Chris Voss. Chris Voss. Okay. Um, that book was awesome. Read that in the whole, this whole, you know, time period of my life, I guess. So it created a lot of frameworks for me to kind of work off of. But mirroring individuals, uh, energy volume approach to the conversation is extremely impactful because in a certain sense, it makes them feel like you're catering back to what they're putting down almost. Chris and I joke, there's an individual on an apartment acquisition we're working on now who's very dogmatic, wants to be Mr. Bossman, wants to be, you know, has a very strong opinion on things and you just kind of lean into it. He wants to complain about everything in the world. So I let him complain about everything in the world and, you know, lean into it and be like, yeah, man, that's just really, it's really tough. Oh, how about this? You know, and I'll bring up another hot topic and he's like, <laughs> oh yeah. And he loves it because he gets to talk about it. And I'm a, I'm a open ear that he gets to do that with and, and, we have good rapport because of that. But he also knows I'm knowledgeable about his asset and what I think it's worth and the approach that we need to go about acquiring that asset. It just kind of cushioned everything that I was able to give him this uh, pile of goodwill, I guess, yeah. by, by communicating with him in a sense that he knew I wasn't I was, he's a type A personality. I wasn't going to come in and try and overpower his type A personality with, oh, we're 11, you know, we're 11 wealth. We buy 2,400 apartment units a year. Blah, 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 blah. He, he couldn't care less about that. It would be, I need to cater to that individual's source of so, personality. So often people, it's not about the, the, the figure. It's not about the no. outcome. And no. you're not, even if you're at the price that that seller wants, if you try to over alpha him mm -hmm. it's just not going to work no and it's funny you brought chris voss because um I, I was taught that stuff in school um this is not a shameless plug uh it can be I, but uh, i did get my master's in negotiation <laughs> <laughs> no but I'll, I'll bring it full circle when i learned those things in 2009 it was like i was reading a textbook and sure you got like fake case like we'd practice in class and stuff but nobody made it make more sense than Chris Voss in that book because he actually applied them to real world situations. Mm -hmm. Life or death situations. Life, yeah. life or death. Yeah. Which helped, holy cow, the mirroring concept. I was taught that in 2009 and I was like, it's actually how I met my wife, by the way. I met my, <laughs> I met my wife in negotiation class and she, you know, she was like, you know, I was watching this, I was, I was doing this. I was like, oh, you're watching this. I love that too. I was mirroring her. Yes. And here we are. Nine years later, tomorrow's our nine year anniversary. Love you, babe. Um, <laughs> But it's funny how the Chris Voss, uh, the book made it come full circle because yeah. it, it, there's another guy, and I don't know if it's the same guy you're talking about, but we met with him for breakfast. About yeah. A, okay. It, it, look, 
This is not being fake. Was this the Sioux Falls? No, I, I don't want to be too detailed. Fair enough. This fair enough. I, I think I. Yeah. But but it's it's um it's not about being fake. It's just about understanding the room, yeah. talking to them what they want to talk about, and making sure that you check those boxes for them. Because in the end, if they get the price they want and they got to vent to you, or if they get the price they wanted and you weren't an alpha, all they wanted to deal with was somebody who wasn't an asshole. That's correct. Boom. Then all of a sudden, you yeah. Your, so that. You, you, you kind of breezed through how important that is, and I'm not saying you meant to pass over it, but it, it is something, it's a skill that most people do not have. And I hate to outplay it, this, but it's a people business. It is the most important skill any anywhere. You, mm -hmm. you are building relationships. You are having people like you and enjoy you. Look at any election. Yeah. People are voting on popularity and how that person speaks to things that they associate themselves with. Mm -hmm. That's how all elections are done. It's not... It's not to what that individual ate for breakfast or how they feel about certain topics. It's about how that individual communicates and do I feel the same way. I feel yeah. like I could have a beer with him. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. The phrase you hear the most. Yeah. yeah, and it's not, to your point, it's not about being fake. I, when, when speaking with individuals, you can make your stance known, but, or I, whether it's, what's, what are the two things, politics and religion, the two things you're never supposed to discuss. <laughs> I mean, regardless of that, you can disagree with somebody on valuation and just say, well, here's the reason for mine. I, I understand the reason for yours. We're just at a difference of opinion here and that's okay. I mean, yep. you don't, you don't have to sit there and be no, like, no, ridiculous. my price is blah, blah, blah. And this is why, and you're stupid for having your price. It's the, the manner in which you disagree or the manner in which you communicate with those individuals can drastically alter a conversation when you're kind of in the acquisitions process. I mean, if the first conversation is, my price is seven million, and you're like, "Well, I'm only getting five five, so we're we're at a big difference here." That's fine, but the way that you communicate that difference, and the way that you communicate that separation, and the way that you're willing to f find middle ground over the course of the acquisition process, that's how you get those deals done. And communicating effectively is the way that that happens. You you just don't. It's why uh, Warren Buffett he actually took that uh, Toastmasters class. Like decades into him being already very successful, he's like. Is, is, that's not Toastmasters. It's Dale Carnegie. I think uh, it's a Dale Carnegie. Yeah, class. but it's, yeah, Dale Carnegie. Is that, is the name of it Toastmasters? Well, they have Toastmasters, but Dale Carnegie <laughs> has his own, but Dale Carnegie has his own class. It's a, it's a big deal. How to win friends and influence people. So it's a, oh, yeah. it's a spinoff of how to win friends and influence it's people. It's a national group you can become a part of still to this day. Yep. I forgot the name of it. It's not Dale Carnegie, but he could have started it. Regardless, decades into what he was doing. He wanted to learn how to effectively communicate to people because he was a genius, but he wanted to be better at public speaking. So I think people really look past that. Yeah, yeah. That's again, I don't. A lot of it's learned. Some people innately have a better sense for it than others, but the the more you do it and intentionally commit to trying to communicate with somebody, there's so much self evaluation after a conversation that happens that you can learn from if you just actually learn and you don't be the dogmatic individual of. Well, that was stupid. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that I actually journal about every night. I, I reevaluate most of my conversations during the day. Mm -hmm. Typically, the ones that are I, I think that I could improve on or didn't go the way that I want, and I write down those bullet points of you know that that person's that person's stance, my stance, where I could have done a better job and listen. I mean, we were just talking about this with what was the book that you recommended, Chris? Good inside. Good inside. You know, which is about parenting, but it also, I mean, at its core, goes to conversations about how you communicate with your spouse and other individuals in general trying to not only empathize but really understand the totality of the situation and be able to communicate effectively back to that person 
without being a hardline stance, yes or no. Yeah. Creating I, fluidity within the mm -hmm, conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I always used to look at it and sometimes to a downfall, people did not like how often I would play devil's advocate. I was trying to like foster a good conversation. But if I had a disagreement with somebody, one of the things I thought was successful, but not near as successful as what Dr. Becky teaches in that book is I would always try to be like, I'm trying to understand your side and I'd try to understand just what they said. But what she says to do is approach it with curiosity. So it sounds like it's the same thing, but instead of saying, you're, I'm saying it's white, you're saying it's black. I, why is it black? I'm trying to understand why it's black. More like, I wonder what factors are making that person think it's black. And if you can approach a sale like that, or you can approach a relationship like that, or you can approach a four-year-old like that, why is she crying? It's not like, oh, I'm late for work, and I wish she'd just be quiet so she could get the car. It's like, I wonder what's going on there, or I wonder why the seller's stuck on 2.4, or I wonder those have helped so much. You've, you've implemented that in seller financing and some of these mm -hmm. unique deals because it, it, it helps you be very curious. That's the phrase. Be curious when you're approaching yeah. situations. If you can, uh, one thing I've, I don't know if this is, it's not Sam Tavis trademark, but if I can <laughs> always frame, I, I never want to be the one to have, or to, to end the conversation willingly, I guess. I always want a response. So if we're at, if we're negotiating on a price, I want to give them a price that they're going to respond to with the intent that I'm going to respond back to them. And then I want to, it, the pitter patter, I want to continue. And then I want to be the one that controls the end game there. I don't want them to be like, no, shut the door. That mm -hmm. I, I never want that to be the case. So foster enough of their interests and their needs to plug into what I'm going to say while still putting some of the necessary components, like in what's take it to real estate. If we are $3 million different in the acquisition price, great. I'll come up a million and a half and I will do a $500,000 carry for you because cash flow is a little bit of concern in your reason for selling. So you're taking a $1 million price cut, but we're giving you some cash flow and we're also getting closer to your price. They're going to respond to that. It might not be perfect, but they're going to respond to it and give you more of a sense of what needs to be done for that deal to be executed, of which then you can bounce back off of your business plan, adjust, bounce back. So I think keeping the conversation fluid without forcing it, Colin and I were talking about that yesterday. You never want to just like plug, 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 plug. You want to make a, a stance and give room for a response and, and a desire for a response and a desire for that individual to want to continue to work with you because you have their interest in mind and you're trying to get something done. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a, that's a common route I take, I guess. I always feed for a response rather than that's great. Take my stance and yeah. sit on my mountain and, and but that, you're going to come to my mountain. It's it never really works. Cause nobody's going to go to your mountain and then no, you're stuck out on your own Island. You can, it, it'll happen once in a blue moon in a really healthy market, like two years ago or three years ago, that works more because it's, kind of just gunslingers going after me. Like, the demand I mean, is there. Yeah, it's it's a cra it's crazy demand. But in an environment like this where people either need a number to walk away or they need revenue to walk away or they need this or, or ease of transacting and, and all these things, you have, to, you have to build a case to get the deal done. And attorney background, you need evidences to build a case. So you need to like get more feedback. You need to know your seller more. And the more that you can get responses out of them, by phrasing either offers or questions on the front end to get those answers, you're, you're going to be way more successful. How do you deal with sellers that won't give you a price? 
I will get a like back of the napkin valuation. Most of what I use is 1% rule still. Okay. I mean, if they're getting, if it's, and I do 1% rule based off monthly, not annual. So if somebody's getting 700 a unit and it's a 10 unit, I'm thinking 700,000 is the price, 70 a door. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll bounce that off of them looking for a response. Be like, you know, if, if I've got to put a lot of work into this and I, I think the valuation 700, if I've got to put a lot of work into this, I'm around 625. If it's kind of turnkey ready to go, I think I'd be ready to go at 700. If you think there's a lot of runway in this thing left and uh, I can add a lot of value really quickly, you know, then definitely I'll go above 700. Um, we can talk about what that number might be, but you know, phrasing it like that where you, okay, this is where I'm at. I understand why you're at where you're at. Let's find the next and step. We're not going to get to the end price right now. Let's just find the next step. And that's when they're not giving you a price up on that. Yeah. That's just starting the conversation. Correct. Hey, that's, that's genius because you're trying, you're, you're digging, you're curious, you're trying yeah. to figure out where you're coming from. You're asking for an evidence-based approach. You are, yeah. you are using something that is very concrete that you can read in any real estate book, which is the 1% rule. Yeah. And then you are providing the variables, which that seller will know. They'll know if their property needs a lot of work. They'll know if they haven't raised rents in three years and you can add 20 to 30% of rents immediately mm-hmm. and that it is below market. And they can then give you those facts and they can internalize it. So you actually are creating that volley. Mm-hmm. That's a good little nugget too, because even the 1% rule was great when it was written in 2004 and everyone was excited. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you can find those deals still, then you should certainly take advantage of it. And I think that certainly if you have a seller who's like, I'm not giving you a price, what do you want to offer? It's a great place to start for it's, the buyer. <laughs> it's just super easy to be like, well, this is what you're getting per, per unit. And here's the number of units. The, the math is so simple in your head. You can do it in two seconds. You know, it's not, especially when you've made the amount of calls that you're, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that acquisition people are making, Yeah, you, you have a very quick idea of it. And you want to foster the conversation and if you throw down the 1% rule, just dogmatically, again, they're going to be like, no, what are you talking about? It's yeah. a stupid price. But if you give it some context and you say, well, this is the reason for this, this is the reason for this, this is the reason for this, what do you think? Then, I mean, you, you get a response and you're winning the conversation at that point. Especially when they start the conversation with, I'm not giving you a price. You can yeah. say, well, here's why I'm at where I'm at. Let's talk about yeah. it. Well, yeah. What are, what are some of the commonalities you find uh, among these sellers? And are these individuals that are responding to you through a direct mail or marketing campaign or are you doing cold outreach a lot of so handful of handful of leads come through broker connections that are off-market broker connections we're not doing a whole lot of on-market shopping that they trust me enough to have communication with the sellers um i would say that's 50 percent. then the other 50 percent is direct seller that's either email or cold call i haven't really done much direct mail i'm very interested to get into that um, but I've done a lot of cold calling and a lot of emailing, and that's mainly where I get most of the response from. And I've gotten good at diffusing cold call situations very quickly. I think you have about 10 seconds to get in the door on those. And uh, that's, that's another, um, skill, I guess that diffusing those conversations rather than like really pursuing an acquisition is more important than. Uh, giving them, them on the phone is so important. Yes, keeping I, them on the phone and trusting phone, you, giving them something to getting respond them, to. You. Getting them on the phone. Yeah, good information. I mean, that was the same conversation we were having yesterday. We, yeah. we, you don't want to dig too deep if no. we're talking to these individuals. They don't care what color their LVP is. Correct. We, we're trying to get basic information, but 
also instill trust. Instill yeah. trust that we do what we say and we say what we do. Correct. Because, I mean, Chris, I'm sure you get a bunch of these letters, phone calls all the time. And they'll ask, hey, are you interested in selling? Everything's for sale. What can I help you with? Well, how many square feet is the house? G- guys, w- w- what are we doing here? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, have you looked it up? I keep getting calls for this individual lot. I have a blank lot that has like a bunch of garden boxes on it. Mm-hmm. I get calls all the time for the same property. Do, are you interested in selling? Every time my answer is yes. Well, tell me how many square feet it is, guys. Just, just Google it, please. Do, mm-hmm. do, do me just a little bit of favor there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's very important too. If you're calling, prospecting, what you're calling before you do it is very important. If you're just have a phone number and that's all you have, you're probably wasting your time. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Okay, so I want to get back to uh, you started wholesaling homes, then apartments, mm-hmm. and then you started like owning apartments, and then you got into storage. Tell us about how that whole process worked out. Yeah, uh, the storage thing, it was, I don't know, a shiny object. You guys always give me a hard time for shiny object stuff, but dog water uh, parks. Yeah, dog water parks. Correct. No, something. it was, uh, it was something I just we Instagram algorithms. I don't know. It fed into my Instagram algorithm, so I got interested in it. Uh, and I joined AJ Osborne's uh, inner circle. Um, he's a large syndicator operator of, of uh, Keylock Storage, and he does a great job. Um, Define Keylock. Sorry, what, what is Keylock? So that's his. That's his. That's his name. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just peak curiosity. I I had witnessed a lot of what you guys had done with the multifamily asset class and admired it. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna reinvent the wheel and like jump these guys like they're freaking killing it what can i add what can i do that's kind of niche unique that not a lot of people around us are doing nebraska doesn't really have a huge like operator or, or syndicator in storage space we've got dino storage in omaha we've got big red storage in lincoln but there's not you know like a, a household name you've got REIT quality stuff so i guess the curiosity uh peaked with that and i was like i just want to learn this business and it's exactly like multifamily on the on the operations front that you are buying an asset, but more than anything, you're you're buying a business. And if you don't know how to operate that business, it doesn't matter. If it, I I love what you said. If you can't operate it, you can't buy it. So learning how to operate that was was uh, a curiosity, and then just took the acquisition skill set into a different class, I guess asset class. Uh, took some of the same approaches way more mom and pop owners and, and self-storage because they're kind of ancillary, kind of like your fours and your eights, uh, four and eight unit complexes mm-hmm. of apartments. But storage is is just a little different like that. There's a lot of mom and pop operations. So, what, um, do, you like it? what do you like about the storage? I like the amount of turnover that there is. Um, there's it, it, It's easier to solve an occupancy problem or, or a vacancy problem because you have monthly leases and there's... I guess there's more fluidity and controlling rents and stuff. Like I can buy an asset that is 60% economically occupied and 95% physically occupied. And over the course of three, six, nine months, I can probably stabilize that thing close to the end value that I want versus multifamily. You're working against 12 month leases and you're working against human Mm -hmm. beings and you're working against exactly. Yeah. So from a, from a revenue stabilization perspective, I like it a lot. Um, you need to have factors in place to be able to do that. You can't just go in and raise people's rates and not do anything and be like, Here, you know, this is my new thing. 
That's not how, I mean, you know that with multifamily, you have to add amenities, you have to add security cameras, put a gate, put a fence, put, you know, things are like those some of the, Are those some of the biggest things? What, what are those amenities that you used to add? The value? biggest value add is yeah, security is the number one thing. You're not gonna wanna store stuff that people can just go jack whenever they want. So security is number one, that comes in the form of a gate, a fence, security cameras, good locks, uh, secure locks, those are pretty much the four main value add things that we use and then ease of use. So online move in, uh, we, all, all of our complexes are remote move in. So you don't have to have somebody on site. We have DaVinci locks, uh, and there's an app for it and you, they, they send you an, or we send you a code that's on the lock. You unlock the unit and you change the code on your app and there you go. You moved into the unit and you can do credit card on your phone and go move into the unit and we never have to be there. So it's kind of satellite operations, which is nice, but very time intensive. I'll get Nick Bruin and Steven Anthony, my, my two partners on that. They did most of that. I mean, 95% of that. And to their credit, did a great job. So uh, we've discussed it and built it out internally, but the implementation of it, they did a great job with. So it, is there a, um, is there a certain scale like a certain size of storage units that's that's too small, I guess that that makes sense for the the business model that you're approaching. The, yeah, I mean, under ten thousand square feet, it, square feet's the metric used in self storage all the time because unit mixers are different. I can have a ten by ten that's a hundred square feet, and I can have a ten by twenty that's two hundred square feet. Thanks for doing that math for Colin. I appreciate. That. Well, I'm just saying. Mm. I know you needed it. Those are. I, I probably need to move <laughs> Those are, that's a difference between, you know, 100 units and 50 units if you're talking about 10,000 square feet. So measuring on units is kind of difficult because it's it, one, the same size facility can be 50 units or 100 units or 150 units. So 10,000 square feet is kind of that metric. Square, square footage, does that line up, does that correlate directly with the amount of rents or similar to multifamily when you go from a one to a two to a three? And, and they get bigger, you're not necessarily doubling or tripling the rents. You want to sliding scale. Well, in storage specifically, it's a lot more supply demand um, oriented in terms of pricing. You do want to stay kind of on a sliding scale of square foot. So I'll use one of our facilities, for example, we have 10 by 10s at 70 bucks. So it's 70 cents a square foot per month for that unit. Our 10 by 20s double size are 120, I think. So 60 cents a square foot. So you are kind of have, you have a sliding scale, but if that 10 by 20, if we only have five units available and it's full all the time, I can, I know I can push that just like you can. It's just like multifamily. It's, it's just like multifamily with supply demand of that unit. I mean, if you've got a, a loft corner unit, it's going to be at a premium. Yeah. And, and so, per square foot for multifamily is also higher for smaller units too. Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So that's, that's that function, I guess. What's the most interesting thing you found? And I mean, I, I've watched a lot of storage wars. What's, uh, what's the most interesting interesting thing you found we were, in the storage unit after clearing it out? We were, uh, I guess we weren't clearing this one out. We were down in Missouri walking a facility and uh, Nick walked in or tried to open the door and there was some dude with his pants off just sleeping in there and loads of feces. Good for him. Just in there. And yeah, it was really funny. Nick panicked. You guys could probably... <laughs> get, I get Nick <laughs> threw the door down and was like oh. it was it was really funny that, okay I've that's probably that's that's interesting. Interesting. that happens a lot actually in storage especially with the rising cost of places to live and stuff it, yeah. I, more in you're probably like mm -hmm. new york's and places like that 
I would think less in your well maybe more in Omaha's and in Lincoln's but it's less in your small towns yeah we've seen some gross stuff in multifamily you guys might have seen some more gross things than I have yeah yeah probably I mean, there was a guy in a garage doing meth not too long ago, and mm. he, he also had his friends in there, and that was a surprise. Very much. He was also tampering with the electric, which affected a lot of the buildings, too, so he could start cooking and doing other items in there. So there's just there's ne- never an endless amount of surprises. As wow. well as what I was telling you about today, one resident just running their water constantly, enough hot water that the entire building doesn't have hot water because he's just been utilizing all the hot water for his dishes gotta love his it. bathtub that's overflowing. Gotta love it. It's something. Somebody's gotta love it. <laughs> you, you can't win them all, right? Yeah. It's, it's not all positive, that's for sure. No. No, but no. it's, uh, but, I mean, that's, that's what we do. We solve problems. Correct. I mean, it's, you either let the problems overrun you or you find new processes to mitigate these issues. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now there's, <laughs> there's garage checkups. There, there, there are just these different things that we know now after being experienced in this business. Yep. What are some of the major difficulties um, that that's different from multifamily? Because storage units, I, I know you, you don't have tenants, toilets, et cetera. You do have tenants that are occupying the storage unit, but they're not physically living there. But I feel like there could be things that get lost in the cracks or having to clear out storage units or, or whatever that may be. What are some of the, the difficulties that I guess maybe you saw, maybe you didn't see, but that differ from multifamily? Um with our business model, one of them is having somebody on site to do the necessary things that you need done. We call them field maintenance techs. So that's just kind of our slap label for it. Uh, but having somebody in the community that stops by the facility once or twice or three times a week to rake up the leaves. Um, if there's a move out, clean out the unit, you know, go in with a broom and sweep out the unit and sweep off the door and make it look pretty. Just like your turnover in a multifamily, it's obviously a lot simpler. Uh, but you do have turnover, and you want to make sure that that unit is rent ready. Are so, you paying that person hourly, or uh, we pay them on a? I think it's every. No, I'm not, this is bad. I don't know this. It's a every third week or once a month, three weeks or once a month. It's the flat rate. Flat rate, yeah. And uh, so that's one. Delinquency is probably the biggest one. That's the biggest challenge because it varies by state. State laws are different. So we have Kansas, Minnesota, and Iowa at the moment, and Kansas is easily the wild west easiest operation to do with minnesota and iowa are more challenging um but there's different processes you have to follow um legalities and then obviously collecting from the tenant is still a challenge you can have people that are four or five hundred dollars delinquent if they're three months late on 150 dollars a month and you have to try and recoup some of that cost so that that's a challenge. Have you transitioned to auto pay? Is it all electrical? Or are they still dropping off cash? Or? No, we we don't we don't take checks or cash at all. We do all auto pay or credit card. Our ACH we give a discount for ACH because there's no credit card fees, and then we do a credit card price. How, how does a, an eviction uh, work in the storage world? Like, are you going to court similar to? to an actual multifamily or is this just all done through paperwork? I, how are you getting? How are you reclaiming your property? I guess. I'm not going to speak on that very deeply because I don't know the process as well as my partners do. So I would want them to speak on that. But you're reclaiming your property through an auction process that has to be taken to the open market. You don't innately get their property because they refuse to pay. You still have to treat that individual as a tenant, even though they're delinquent. So it's still their property. 
their property has to be auctioned in order for you to recoup your cost. And you don't actually get to recoup any excess profit. You can recoup your property, which is say they're $400 delinquent, you can recoup $400. But say the unit sells for 600, you can't recoup 600 on your 400. When you say 600, that means the items inside go to auction? Yes. Do, yes. do you physically, sorry, this is There's interesting. auction agencies. Okay. So you, we bring on a third party auction agency, they come do it. And that's facilitated through our operations. I mean, you have to line that up and everything, but they, they handle the auction process and then the payment comes either back to us at the end or we didn't make enough to recoup all the cost and that's just a sunk cost okay. at that point. Does our agent friend in Wichita, you know what I'm talking about? Does, he, uh, does that auction group do that? No, I don't think so. No, they, they do auctions on like houses. I don't, they just listed a sweet house has baseball field on it. Super random. Sorry. <laughs> I just saw it the other day though. Nice. <laughs> is, that on ten, is that on 10 X? I don't know. I don't think it's on 10 X. They have their, it's, they're like a, nationwide auctioneer website so yeah tangent but pretty cool interesting do a lot of people show up to these auctions or are these all online where they're they take, online so they take pictures of like yeah. here here's your furniture yeah. anybody want this lamp and then the somebody are, says are we talking about lamp. storage or are we talking about i'm talking about storage okay. i'm still t- i love <laughs> they're, lamp they're I, most of them are online most of them are okay. online i believe uh they i don't remember what the qualification is for an in-person auction but most of them are online Okay, so so final question, and then uh, we're, we're going to jump to our, our final segment. But okay, I lost it. Oh, qualifications. How are you qualifying individuals in you know apartment world? It's two and a half to three times gross monthly income, no evictions, no criminal background, et cetera. We have these these strict set of criteria. What's this like in the storage world? Very much not the same as that. Okay, uh, because it's again, it's a high turnover business, and you capture most high quality operators capture close to enough profit on the move-in to handle a one or two months delinquency ish so let's say we have a tenant move in on a 10 by 10 for 100 dollars a month our move-in fee is 35 bucks so they get a lock off of that and then they get a move-in fee and then there's no security deposit so they don't owe us anything or we don't owe anything back to them we get first month's rent up front and then if they fall behind 30 days they're going to get into the delinquency process and then auctioned off 30 days after that and we recouped 135 dollars on 200 months of or 200 dollars of scheduled rent so it's not that bad and you're not really prospecting that hard to see who your tenant is it, it's more fluid i guess okay. i mean it's it's there's there's way more volume and turnover and there's more traction it's not like they're not fixed in there for for 12 months i mean your common stays are between six months and 18 months okay and you said these are all virtual showings is that correct of the units of the units we rarely get people inquiring to show them the unit it's mostly just hey do you have a 10 by 20 available yes okay head to our online move-in center or i can move you in over the phone here and then you shoot them their lock and they're ready to go okay awesome yeah yep all right, so we roll to the last part of our show. show. The final three with CNC. If you didn't know, that's Chris and Colin, Sam. I figured uh, that out. I pieced it. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna. I'll start off with the first one. Morning routines. Chris and I are. Every successful person seems like they do something in the morning to to get the get the juices flowing. They know that the world's gonna attack them, so they need to attack the world themselves. They need to. There, whether it's some some suffering, some gratitude, whatever whatever that looks like, you know, mm-hmm. working out, whatever that is. What are some of your morning routines? I 
as of late, I has have not been as diligent as I was in the winter months, which to our cold plunge thing, I had a horse trough that I went and bought from tractor supply, filled it up with water. And from November through March, I sat in that thing every morning. I broke the ice open on it every morning and sat in it for five minutes and five minutes. Just really like deep breathing type thing. And that was a great start to the day. Depending on the day, it was worse than others. Sometimes I would sit in five inches of ice, which was <laughs> it was hard. Fun. Yeah. It, it was very, very hard. But that I loved that. That was a morning routine. Currently I'm I, I'm waking up. My wife always goes and grabs her daughter and she comes into bed with us for like 10 minutes so that's kind of fun I just kind of I gotta wake yeah. up and first thing I see is my daughter a little happy ball is, of joy yeah, yeah, yeah for like for like 10 minutes and head downstairs and I do about 30 minutes of reading um and that's kind of my current start today I guess get a cup of coffee and that reading is anything from devotional to educational to scriptural to uh sports um, but it's something that's not my cell phone. Cool. So I, I, it's, I've, I've got entrapped in the first thing I do, look at my phone or look at my computer thing. It's terrible. It sucks. It's I'm terrible. I'm so much more stressed during the day and it ruins the entire day. It does. Day. It really it does. literally so, ruins the entire day. Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing everything I can to just get away from that. Gosh, I <laughs> Trying to get away from that. Yeah. This so isn't it. This isn't an intervention, Chris. Yeah. Not, not everyone who like turns into one. Get done yawning. I'm already like on my email. <laughs> just it's like 5:58. It's alarms yeah. at 5:57. Oh, that's the yeah. worst. Uh, okay, so yeah. second question: What is your why? Why are you doing all this? My why. See, I have to think about that. You and I were talking about Elon the other day. How he waits to answer. Oh, I love it. There's. I don't think I have one massive why. Uh, I really don't. I I obviously, and I think any sane human being, really wants to take care of their family. That is a huge priority in my life. I want to take care of my family. I want to give them a sustained life and a life that they can pursue things that they want to pursue in, a, in the correct manner. And I think we all know that resources aid in that, whether it's time or money or whatever. So creating the resource stockpile to be able to do those things very important. Um, another big why I think is I, I never want to suck at something. I'm, I just can't stand it. So if I'm going to do something, I want to be elite at it. And that might sound like a weird why, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy to do things you suck at, I guess. It's like, (laughs) it's mental torture. Why would you do something you suck at? So, and why would you pick something to do occupationally that you suck at? So I knew I was I knew I had some skill sets with this and I wanted to foster those skill sets to be the best that I could possibly be at it. And I knew that if I did that, I would be elite at it or at least good enough to be better than the majority. And if I'm doing that and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, then that's really important to me. Um, and then the relationship piece of it for me is massive. I am just a relational human being. So being in communication and in step with people such as yourselves, common interests. And then the single biggest thing is people that are either better than me or are going to push me to do more, I guess. I don't want to, if I'm in a room and I'm doing the most in the room, I'm in the wrong room. You've heard a hundred people say that, but it, I can't stand it. I, I really can't stand it. I will walk out of the room if I get that sense in the slightest. So I, want to be constantly surrounded by people that are doing things better than me that are making you better 
Yeah. 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 And showing you what's possible. Yes. And I just look at it and I'm like, it, that's one thing I think the common population sucks at is people looking at somebody else and having a real sense of if that individual is doing like more or doing something at an extremely high level. I think people are way too arrogant about that and they don't have true self-evaluation. I do what I do extremely well and I'm proud to say that there are still 5,000 people probably in the state that do it at a better level than me. I, I doubt that. Well, I'll, I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like being, being real about it yeah. and saying, okay, there's people out there doing it better than me and not getting cocky yeah. and arrogant and stuck and being like, I've still got to learn. Like I got, I, and I need to get in those rooms and I need to develop that relationship so that that person can, you don't want to free tag along, but if you know that person, you can use the context of that relationship to get better. This explains why you've got up and left the room so many times. It's just you and I talking. <laughs> I don't blame you, no, Sam. You, no, just, you just don't want me true. around. <laughs> not true. I, I have a very high level of, of admiration and respect for what you guys do, and that's why I that's why I always try and chassis up to you guys because I, I do. I, I want to learn it. I want to get better at it, and that's a reason for and it. you're great at getting things off the top shelf, which I really appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I help you with that a lot. No, there, there's two ways to look at people in life, and you, and you realize this. There, there's... When you see somebody doing better than you, you can either say, man, that person was handed it, screw them, blah, blah, blah. Or you can say you want to learn about them. Because I'll tell you what, never is somebody above you that's doing bigger things, they are never down talking what you're doing. They're too busy worrying about helping other people and moving forward. So I think yeah. you just have to frame yourself. To your point, you, you just want to be with those individuals in the room. And most people don't have that self-evaluation. They're just thinking... That person was handed something. Must be nice to be six foot six and play call it, play baseball. Like, good for you, but no, really, there's different struggles that we all go through. Yeah, without a doubt. I'm uh, I'm gonna ask this question. I'm gonna ask it. Okay. Oh. You were a professional baseball player, mm -hmm. and I can only imagine the the numbers of zeros that you were seeing, and the the type of money that you're around, and the the, the future successes. What was the self-talk that you had to have when you had blown your elbow out the second time and made this transition and didn't give up on your goals and your dreams and you had to transition into something different? What, what was going through your head then? Um, that's kind of it's kind of deep. Yeah, it is. It's kind of deep. That's why I said I was kind of hesitating. I wish we had a hookah or something. We can share it to the next. Uh... <laughs> But, but so many people, you hear about the, the, the athlete that blows something out yeah. and then they just start working at the grocery uh, chain. And again, I think, I don't know, I think a level of, a level of self-awareness on, on stuff like that and, and understanding reality is very important. I am not the first person in the world to have two Tommy John surgeries and a hip surgery and have my career ended in athletics because I got hurt, even though maybe I thought that I was good enough to do it with the best of them. I'm not the first person. I won't be the last person. There's, there's steps to take. And I think, I don't know, I, I will, I'll give all the credit in the world to my dad for this because he, he always framed life, framed circumstances in a, in a way that you, you don't get emotionally sucked into it and paralyzed by it. Sometimes that really pisses my wife off, but I'm just because <laughs> I don't, I'm not as a, no, it's super emotional in analysis, but I, was able to say, step back and say, okay, Sam, do you have enough left to go at this again and give it everything you've got and, and try and pursue a career in this? Is this something that's real for you? 
I thought, yeah, I've got the skill too, but my body doesn't want to do it anymore. So I, I'm not going to fight that. I, I don't, I, I'm lucky enough to have a dad as a surgeon who gave me some good advice there that was like, hey, your body's probably, I just cut out for this. <laughs> so, <laughs> your feet, I said. Yeah. But uh, I, you were able to, I was able to step back and just analyze it from a real perspective. I had a wife, I had a daughter on the way. What was I going to do that was going to create the environment and supply of resource to provide for my family? And I think if you're just, you, there is very healthy emotion and there's very toxic emotion. And if you let yourself get sucked into the negative emotion of why something didn't happen versus just extracting yourself and looking at maybe the whys, why didn't I succeed in baseball? Maybe I'm not genetically put together as well as I could be. Maybe I didn't train well enough and put myself in a position where I got hurt. That's okay. It's in the past. Can I overcome it in this certain situation? No, I don't think I could, but I removed myself from the situation and thought, what am I going to do next? I would say you did overcome it though. Absolutely. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. Mentally overcome that. Yeah. But I guess there's just a, you just can't get paralyzed by failure. I mean, I viewed not making it or getting hurt as failure, which 99% of people tell me, oh, you didn't fail. You just got hurt. I failed. I didn't get there. It's fine. I'm not like failure to me isn't a bad word. It's not like you telling me I failed. It's not like, oh, you're, you're miserable at life. It's because of what you choose okay. to do with that failure. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I look at it and I'm going to pivot to something that I will succeed. Sure, I'm going to fail on that journey too, but I'll learn from that and go. But I'm going to put myself in a position where I can take successful steps. Well, well you're crushing it, Sam. That's yeah, for what, sure. What better full circle way to end this uh, podcast because this is literally how we started talking about entrepreneurial routes and we're going to fail, we're going to fail, we're going to fail, we're going to hang, mm-hmm. we're going to fail, we're going to hit. So, But we just got to get up to bat. That's it. That's right. Just get back on your feet. It's most of it. Get back on your feet. Don't be, I was going to say soft. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but just get back on your feet and move forward. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Take the next step. I would probably hit at least two out of every three balls you pitched my way. I would put <laughs> most of my money on that. I, I have, I don't think I've ever hit a baseball, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized you put the glove on the other hand the other day. So. There we go, guys. <laughs> so, uh, that's good. All right, Sam. Thank you so much. This is a this is a great time. I appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. all you do for us, and uh, look forward to to seeing your storage company grow. How can people get a hold of you, and what are you looking for? We are looking storage wise for anything over ten thousand square feet in the Midwest that we can get our hands on. Um, multifamily wise, I'm looking for anything. <laughs> Anything priced correctly uh, that we can that we can go after, um, a lot of opportunity and operations in place. I, primary markets for us are Lincoln, Omaha, Manhattan, Wichita, kind of closer closer to Nebraska these days. Um, and then get a hold of me, Sam at LevinWealth.com. Yes. And Tavis, Tavis like Davis, Tavis like Davis on, on Instagram, Instagram yeah. on Instagram. Look for yep. the blue check mark. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. You bet. Thanks, Thank man. you guys. All right. <laughs>